0: We were on the bus from the ancient city of Jericho to the region of Samaria here in Israel. We still have a little time left on the bus, so let's recap what happened last time. We spent quite a bit of time at Jericho, the oldest city in the world, and I'm so thankful that we were able to meet up with Professor Meyer and he was able to tell us a little bit about the city. How cool was it that he just happened to be there? We learned so much from him. We also ate some amazing food, Israeli brisket, and that croissant-like dessert, chocolate rugelach. Really, it's thicker than a croissant because the dough is made with yogurt, but it has that wonderful chocolate inside. One of my favorite spots we also got to see is Elisha's Spring, which is right across from Jericho. We got to learn a little bit about the prophet Elisha and how Jericho played into his ministry. He was at Jericho a lot especially right after Elijah died. You know, Elisha is an interesting character because I think a lot of people tend to forget about him. He's the protege of Elijah. Uh, Elijah came first and then was taken up to heaven. He technically didn't die, but Elisha actually had more power than Elijah. That might seem borderline heretical to say, especially if you're an Elijah fan, but the Bible itself actually says this. Listen to 2 Kings 2. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. What happens next? Well, Elisha does see Elijah taken from him, meaning that he does get the double portion of Elijah's spirit, of Elijah's power. There's also the interpretation maybe that Elisha is just asking Elijah that he be his rightful heir. It was customary for the rightful heir to get double the inheritance from, from his father uh, over the other sons. But I like the first few better just because Elisha had no competitors that we know of in terms of getting Elijah's inheritance. And then Elijah also responds that it's a difficult thing that Elisha has just asked. So why would it be so difficult? Why would he have to put forward a seemingly odd stipulation? If you see me, then you'll get the inheritance. Why does he do all of that if it's just a question of inheritance? Making Elisha his spiritual heir wouldn't be hard. Elisha would just have had to agree. But I think that there really was a spiritual transfer of power at play Because Elijah knows that it's out of his hands. He would like to give Elisha that power, but he's not the father handing over the inheritance that he controls. It's really up to God as to whether or not that request is granted. But the request was granted. So that makes Elisha a pretty special guy. If you've never seen that before, don't feel bad. I literally only just realized this as I was studying for our tour in my hostel room. So we learned about Elisha last time, and we learned that when he comes back to Jericho after seeing Elijah be taken up into heaven, he cleansed the water from the spring that is now known as Elisha's spring. The people were complaining was making them sick and making the land unproductive, but Elisha has it all under control because of God. So he throws salt into the spring and declares that it will never again make anyone sick. The water is healed. And to this day, it still is because of this miracle. You all can attest to that. You just drank water from Elisha's spring, and everyone here still looks healthy. See, you all are getting your chance to attest to the miracles in the Bible. Well, we have just under 20 minutes before we arrive at Samaria, where we'll be for the next few tours here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. There's a lot to see here, and there's a lot here that most people don't ever get to see. Well, let's put it this way. I know a man who has come to Israel over 20 times. He never once stopped at many of these locations in Samaria that we're going to see on this tour. And finally, my family found out about this and told him that the next time he was in Israel, he needed a stop in Samaria. And he actually ended up on his next trip to Israel using our amazing tour guide and seeing the region of Samaria. That alone should tell you something about this place. It's hidden, but it's a hidden gem. So Samaria is a region of Israel that includes a few important places such as Shechem, that's where we're going to today, and also Mount Gerizim, which is the home of the Samaritan religion. It's actually such a fascinating place that we're going to dedicate a specific tour to visiting Mount Gerizim. Now, the region of Judea, that includes Jerusalem, is just below us. So get that mental picture in your mind. It's funny because we're here on location in Israel, yet we're just driving along. And we can easily lose our orientation as we're here in the land. Sometimes we just have to look at a map and see what's around us or gain our bearings. But now you know, Jerusalem in the south, Samaria in the north, almost a straight line between those two. Just going on the vertical axis. So like I said, Shechem is where we're headed to today, and that's because a significant story in the Bible took place there. It's a classic Sunday school story, but there's a lot more to it in terms of cultural context that is usually left out. You probably know what story I'm talking about because we talked a good deal about it last time. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and her interaction with Jesus. So what happened here is that Jesus decides he's going to go back to the region of Galilee in the north of Israel. At this point, he was in the region of Judea in the south. So based on what I just told you, what's in the middle of Judea and Galilee? Samaria, right? So Judea in the south, we have Samaria in the middle, and we have Galilee in the north of Israel. So it seems logical that to get to the region of Galilee, Jesus would travel through Samaria just like the Bible says he did. I mean, wouldn't you take the straight shot? I I think of when I drive back to Michigan at the start of every college semester. I live in South Carolina, so I end up going through North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and finally I reach Michigan. It's a long 14 hours, um, (laughs) but it would be a lot longer if I decided to head west first. Maybe I go through Georgia and Alabama, and at some point I'd go really south and check out New Orleans, and maybe I'd head a little north, but hit Oklahoma, and why not Kansas on my way too? But finally, I'd get back on track and head through uh, Missouri, Illinois, I think Indiana, and then I'd finally hit Michigan. Okay, seriously, let's say that I did that. What would you think of me? Uh, you probably think I were crazy, unless I told you I was doing a sightseeing trip or, or seeing family. But what if I told you I was just trying to avoid people I didn't like over in Tennessee and Kentucky? Well, well, you'd say, Abigail, how dumb are you? Why would you do that? All just to avoid some people. Now, that's an extreme example. And it doesn't quite fit perfectly to the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus's interaction with her. But essentially, that is what the Jews and Samaritans did. Samaria was in the middle of Israel, and you needed to pass through it to get to places. But the Jews and Samaritans were on such bad terms that they wouldn't take that route. Now, my example doesn't fit perfectly because those people would have traveled on foot. And I will say it's harder to get away from a bandit on the side of the road or an angry Samaritan if you were a Jew when you're walking with all your stuff and are tired from the journey and you don't have a nice car that you can just press down the accelerator on and and all of a sudden be going 70 miles an hour down the road. But still, it seems crazy to us. Why would anyone just take a longer route to avoid a group of people? But remember, there were two alternate routes that we learned about that were commonly taken to do just this, to avoid the Samaritans. The first one went through Jewish communities, and it was longer by only a few days. It just skirted around Samaria. And remember that they would have had to have crossed the Jordan River twice. As we talked about, the Jordan River parallels the straight shot from Jerusalem to Shechem. And so you could have gone just alongside the Jordan River, even though that would have forced you to go all the way to the east side of Israel. And that makes it a a little longer. And then you would have just gone straight, um, paralleling that Jerusalem-Shechem path. Now, the second one would have gone west to parallel the Mediterranean Sea, which the coast of Israel sits on. So this route is the one of the coastal plain on the west. And I'd imagine it was quite pretty, as the Mediterranean Sea and the coast of Israel uh, the the quite beautiful locations, and there are actually some cities on the coast that we'll get to see soon enough, and, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. But it was the longer of the two alternate routes, having to go all the way to the coast of the Mediterranean. So like I keep emphasizing, this all seems so odd. Why wouldn't someone trying to get up to Galilee in the north from Judea in the south just go through Samaria in the middle? Well, like we learned, the Jews and Samaritans had some fundamental differences in terms of their religious practices. and Because of that, they despised each other. A Jew who would take the route through Samaria was putting himself at risk for getting robbed, injured, Or maybe even killed and that's why the longer routes were preferred. So that's the context for why Jesus, a Jew, going through Samaria is so strange. I think the picture Jesus paints here for us is quite beautiful. Jesus did come as the Jewish Messiah. He fulfilled all the prophecies to be that Jewish Messiah, yet his own, the Jews, did not receive him. But thankfully, Jesus also came to save the world. He came not only to save the Jews who would reject him, but he also came to save the Samaritans and all the rest of the people like you and me. To a Jew reading this story, Jesus's choice to go through Samaria seems, I guess you could put it unwise, maybe even suicidal, but it fits with Jesus's perfect character. He is God and he loves all people yet humans sinned, and in that there was a chasm placed between themselves and God. But Jesus came to bridge that chasm for all who would choose to accept him. It's a promise which still stands today. Jesus loved the Samaritans just as much as the Jews. He does not pick and choose who he will save. He offers his free gift of salvation to all, Samaritan, Jew, or Gentile. Thinking about the story in this way helps me to see that this physical act of Jesus taking a path through Samaria really emphasizes what Jesus came to do to save all men. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Not only does he pass through Samaria, but he also stops and talks to a Samaritan woman. This would have been unheard of. In this culture, women and men were not seen as equal with respect to rights. Now, thankfully, today, in the United States, this has changed, and we can be thankful for our country recognizing that all people, male and female, black and white, have been given the same natural rights by God and are therefore equal. But in the ancient world, this was not the case. A respected Jewish man like Jesus would simply not have talked to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus does. He breaks cultural boundaries because... He came to save all people. So cultural boundaries, as as I learned from this, they really hold no place in the kingdom of God. Well, we'll save the rest of the story for when we're actually on location at Jacob's well. For now, with just about five minutes remaining in our bus ride, enjoy looking out the window. Our bus driver, Mikael, is doing a great job winding us down the streets of Shechem. Well, actually, today Shechem is an Arab city known as Nablus. There's some rather cool archaeology here at the Tell, right? So there's the old city of Shechem, which has now been excavated, and it's been broken up into those layers of the cake that we know about at Tells. But there's also the city of Shechem, the city of Nablus, which has been built around that Tell. Obviously, there are more people living here in Nablus, in in Shechem, than there were in ancient times. But it's, it's so fun getting to drive through such an old city. You can imagine Jesus walking through here and Samaritans bustling about. And of course, these roads to our, to our left and right and the houses, uh, they wouldn't have been here. This would have just been wide open land. And the real city would have been the very small tell where everyone would have just been packed into. We'll actually go and visit that on a future tour. Well, we're almost at Jacob's Well here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. But I think we should keep up with our Hebrew. How about we learn our next essential phrase as we finish up our drive to the well? As we talked about last time when we learned our first Hebrew phrase, it's going to be a little harder for us to actually learn the Hebrew alphabet and all the sounds of the letters and how they come together and the rules of pairing and and vowels and all of that. Essentially, I'm saying that learning to read Hebrew takes a bit of effort. But some of you have already done a good job at taking my advice and comparing the Hebrew and English portions of the signs on the road to try and recognize some of the Hebrew and pair it with an English word. A few of you have even asked uh, me if you're right. And I'm happy to report that if I were your Hebrew professor and that were your assignment comparing the the Hebrew and the English and making a a connection, you'd have a grade of an A plus right now. One other thing you should get used to is reading Hebrew from right to left. Right to left. In English, we read and write from left to right. And since that's what you're used to, you want to approach any language you see that's written, including Hebrew, in the same way. But train yourself to not do that. I forced myself to look right and then go left whenever I saw Hebrew, which was quite frequently, obviously, when you're here in Israel. Now, I couldn't understand it, but it got me in a good habit. So when I would learn the alphabet and then could start to sound out Hebrew phrases, I would be in good practice already. And now it's a habit. Whenever I see Hebrew, even in the States, I always jump to the right and look right to left. I mean, I don't see Hebrew that often, but my favorite college professor, she loves Hebrew. She has Hebrew in her office on the walls and a screensaver on her desktop that has Hebrew. And whenever I'm in her office, I'm in the habit, right to left. So you should get in that habit, too. Now, what did we learn last time? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We learned how to ask someone if they know English or not, which is obviously really important. Now, let's review. For a guy, how would you ask someone if they know English? Well, you would say, ata, Mavin gleet." Ata mevin Englit. Now if we're a girl, it would be At Mevina Inglit, At Mevina Englit. And then we also learned a few interpretive words. We learned that lo means no, ken means yes, and katsat means a little. So this week I think we should learn how to say a little bit of truth. You now know just a few Hebrew words, but you should be able to share that with someone. This shouldn't be too hard because we're going to add to our current base. So let's learn how to say, I understand a little Hebrew, because now you do. You can ask someone if they understand English and then interpret their response. So therefore, that means that you do understand at least a little bit of Hebrew. So for a guy, it's going to go like this. Ani, mevin, Katsat, hevrit. Ani, mevin, katsat, hevrit. So Ani is I, mevin is understand, but in the male form, katsat is a little, and hevrit is Hebrew. For a girl, it's going to be, Ani, mevinah, katsat, hevrit. Ani, mevinah, katsat. Hevrit. Right, so Ani is I, Mevina is the female version of understand, Ketzat is a little, and then hevrit. That's always a little hard for me to say. It's kind of the rolled R that they're wanting you to get there, but I'm very bad at that. But hevrit is Hebrew. So let's practice. For a guy, what would you say if you wanted to tell me that you understand a little Hebrew? Ani. Mevin, katsat, read? yes, or I should say ken, meaning yes. What about for a girl? Ani, katsat, read? Ken, you all are professionals. Well, we're just arriving at the location for Jacob's Well, so let's head on inside and take a closer look at this cool site. Jacob's well is now underneath this Eastern Orthodox church, so let's walk on through. It's a beautiful church, as many in Israel are, but for now we need to hurry through because we're meeting someone downstairs who's going to let us look at the well. But we're out of time, so we're just going to have to go downstairs, check out the well, and see the location where Jesus actually talked with this woman next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure in Shechem.